This is The Rounds Table. Hey there, Rounds Table listeners. Welcome back to another great week on the show. We have a fan favorite returning back from last year. Dr. Ariel Lefkowitz joins us today to talk about a very exciting trial, and I'm sure you're all going to be shocked and chagrined by it. Ariel, welcome back to the show. Thanks very much for having me, and uh, I'm very excited to tell you about this study. Well, then let's not wait any longer. Ariel, please introduce your article for the week. So the article is called Reevaluation of Diagnosis in Adults with Physician-Diagnosed Asthma. It came out in January of 2017, published by Sean D. Aaron et al., and it was in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association. But despite it being an American journal, it's a homegrown Canadian trial out of Ottawa. Wow. I'm wheezy with excitement. Ariel, what's the bottom line for this article? So the bottom line, Kieran, is in this prospective multicenter cohort study of about 600 adult patients with asthma diagnosed in the preceding five years, current diagnosis of asthma could not be established in about a third of patients. Wow, a third. That's quite an astounding number. Um, why did you choose this article or frame it for us? How do, how do the authors put it in the context of the greater importance of uh, diagnosing asthma? I'll tell you how I feel about it, and, and I may be you know, even more confident in saying how I feel than the authors in this very important journal. You know, Every day we rely on a patient's prior diagnoses to guide their future care. Everyone has been to the bedside to, to ask the patient what's been done already and to find out from the chart what's already been diagnosed. And now we find that re-examining an incorrect diagnosis of adult uh, onset asthma could save a patient's life, which I hope I'll be able to convince you of today. Wow. And I completely agree. You, you see these people carry these diagnoses through their medical charts when they turns out they never even really had it. Although in this case, it sounds like they think they truly had because a physician diagnosed it with them. But absolutely, if somebody comes to the emergency department short of breath and I see in their past medical history they have asthma, I'm going to immediately assume, or at least it's going to be one of the top you know, thoughts in my mind, is that this is probably something to do with his asthma. But if he didn't have asthma, then... In a busy ER, you know, we have to trust each other, and it really, uh, it's scary almost, you know, so... It is a little bit scary. Okay, well, let's let's find out a little bit more about why it's scary and what you're going to convince us at the end of the, uh, the article analysis. Tell us about the design of this study and where it took place. So it's an interesting design. It calls itself a prospective cohort, but in some ways it's also a retrospective cohort. It's a prospective cohort in as much as it looks at patients with existing diagnoses of asthma that were diagnosed in the, in the five years prior. They were recruited and prospectively assessed to whether a current diagnosis of asthma could be established. And I'll tell you how they did that with spirometry. And in some ways, it's a retrospective cohort since they looked at those patients that I described selected, and they looked into who diagnosed them and how they did it. I see. So I, I suppose that's retrospective in a sense, but that's just sort of their, their recruitment criteria for entry into the cohort, and then they prospectively follow them, as you said, right? Yeah. So part of the analysis is is how many of those patients underwent spirometry prior to their diagnosis, their initial diagnosis, and also who diagnosed them, whether it was a family doctor or respirologist, an allergist, etc. I see. I see. So you told us a little bit about what sound like some of the inclusion criteria, but just take us through formally if there's anything more we need to know. Who did they actually end up including in this study? 
So these were adults greater than 18 years old with a diagnosis of asthma by a physician in the preceding five years. They couldn't be on systemic steroids and they couldn't have a smoking history more than 10 pack years to try to exclude those patients who may have COPD or asthma COPD overlap. Okay. Anything important about an exclusion criteria? So it's worth mentioning that the, the vast majority of these patients out of keeping with our general population are not smokers which of course is going to exacerbate asthma as well as causing obstructive lung disease. And we also aren't talking about the most severe cases of adult onset asthma, those that would require systemic steroids. Okay, so this is a prospective observational study, but really we're looking at a descriptive analysis of the rates of incorrect diagnosis of asthma in patients. Is that kind of what we're getting at here, Ariel? Right, and the way that we're going to determine that is the patients who we've found by random digit dialing to have a physician diagnosed asthma in the preceding five years, they're going to have them visit a number of times for spirometry in order to try to establish yet again a a diagnosis of asthma. So Ariel, just to be uh, painfully clear, what is the primary outcome that they're measuring here? So the primary outcome was the proportion of patients in whom a diagnosis of current asthma was ruled out. So after the patients underwent spirometry a number of times, if they couldn't establish the spirometric parameters of asthma, so an FEV1 that improves by more than 12%, uh, as well as more than 200 milliliters, or if they did not meet criteria by a methicoline challenge uh, done serially thereafter, then they would meet the primary outcome. Any important secondary outcomes that they were uh, sniffing after? Uh, One important secondary outcome I would mention would be the proportion of those patients who were diagnosed with adult onset asthma who actually had underwent appropriate diagnostic testing for that diagnosis. Okay, and so I guess kind of what they're getting at with that outcome is to look at um, would those people have gone on to to have appropriate workup and so this kind of exposure isn't really meaningful in in the sense that they would have gone on to be discovered not to have asthma later versus people actively looking in this case to change that diagnosis. I think that's sort of what they're getting at here. Well, the question, Kieran, is is going to be whether or not the patients who are found to not have asthma, they may be in remission or it may have been a misdiagnosis in the first place. And so we're not going to uh, come down on either side, but certainly if a patient didn't undergo spirometry initially, it leads us to suspect that the reason may have been a misdiagnosis initially. Yeah, absolutely. So um, let's get into actually what they found. You've given us a taste in the bottom line. Um, it sounded pretty surprising. Let's uh, let's rehash some of that and get into some of the details. So a full one-third, as I said, 33% of patients diagnosed with adult-onset asthma could not be diagnosed with asthma at the time of the study using the serial spirometry as I described. 33%. That's an astounding number. What other uh, findings do they have about appropriate testing or misdiagnosis, etc.? So of those patients who were found to have asthma at the time of the study by spirometry, more of them had been tested with spirometry at the time of the diagnosis. So 75% of those patients who were found to have asthma at the time of the study had been initially diagnosed with asthma using spirometry versus only 59% of those in the group that were found not to have a, a diagnosis at the time of study. 
So essentially what we're saying is that a large proportion of adults who carry a diagnosis of asthma have never had spirometry to confirm that diagnosis? That's right. And it really raises questions of, of access to spirometry and how resource intensive it is to, to go about being thorough when sometimes a puffer that relieves symptoms is a very tempting second option. Yeah, no, absolutely. Excellent point. So Ariel, tell me any anything interesting as far as the methodology of the study or other thoughts you had that you wanted to point out that stuck out to you? So one thing that was interesting is that even in patients who undergo spirometry, you know, it, it uh, this study uh, shows us how widely a diagnosis of asthma in an adult can be. Only of the patients who were found to have asthma in the end, only 86 of them were found to have reversible airway obstruction at that first visit, while 287 of them were diagnosed by a methacholine challenge at the second, third, or fourth visits. So if you, if suppose you get a, a spirometry on a patient and you find that they don't have bronchial hyperresponsiveness, uh, or rather they don't have reversible airway uh, obstruction on spirometry, that may not be enough. You know, so it, the, the design of this study with serial spirometry shows how thorough you have to be to really pin down this diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Not an easy diagnosis to make it sounds like, or one that can be made on the first visit. Um, and that makes me want to ask the question, Ariel, you know, inhaler medications are not cheap. Um, what proportion of these individuals, a third of them who you told us ultimately go on to have no diagnosis of asthma, were on uh, uh, asthma inhaling medications? The majority were. Uh, and part of this study was even in the patients who were found to have asthma, uh, they tried to wean everyone off of their puffers as much as possible. Um, and, you know, I think that that's appropriate because every patient with asthma should be on the minimum amount of, uh, of asthma medication that they need. So let's talk about some of the alternative diagnoses that they came up with. I think this is kind of interesting for the listenership just to find out what, you know, alternate diagnosis that asthma was replacing. Tell, tell us, Ariel, what, what did they come up with? I'm really glad you asked me that because this is the part that gets me the most pumped up. Uh, these are not benign diagnoses that we're missing. We're missing ischemic heart disease, COPD, uh, even sarcoidosis, you know, interstitial lung disease, pulmonary hypertension. These conditions have wildly different treatments that could that could save a life if we can reverse a diagnosis that may have seemed right initially but is no longer. I agree, and thankfully those were the minority in this study. So just for those who rolled the dice on probability, it looked like allergic or non-allergic rhinitis and GERD or even a little touch of anxiety were sort of the more common alternative diagnoses. That's right, and some, some patients weren't found to have any diagnoses at all. Um, and were found to be asymptomatic, whether by remission or or, uh, or by the fact that maybe the diagnosis was misplaced in the first place. Wow, pretty pretty astounding. Um, although I suppose I should say not all that astounding. We often get anchored in medicine, and, and people, as I said, we know people carry these diagnoses, but it's pretty fascinating to see such a powerful uh, finding in, in such a large proportion of patients. So tell me, Ariel, who is the typical patient in this study? A person comes into my office, has carries a diagnosis of asthma, and I'm going to think about reevaluating that. What does that person look like? So the average patient uh, in the study was a white female, aged 50, with a BMI of about 30. That was the 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 real 
median patient that you would have seen in this study. So Ariel, what is the main learning point or learning points that you want listeners to take away from this very interesting study? I want our listeners to remember that uh, spirometry is the gold standard for diagnosing asthma, not to forget about the methacholine challenge and the power of serial spirometry. And when you see a patient with asthma, always ask your patient how they arrived at that diagnosis, who made the diagnosis, and whether that may no longer be accurate, whether their asthma may actually be in remission. And if you think about alternative diagnoses, you may be saving a life. Is this going to change how you practice, or are you always a skeptic and questioning everybody's diagnoses? <laughs> well, Kieran, as you know, I'm the world's <laughs> greatest doctor, and so I never miss it. <laughs> you know, I think it even for, for seasoned physicians, not like myself, but even for seasoned physicians, it it uh, it points us in the direction of, of adding a healthy dose of skepticism and always reevaluating the diagnoses that our patients carry. Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, the toughest part will be a lot of the patients that we see in internal medicine carry four, five, six, or ten diagnoses, and it's going to be difficult to have a you know skeptical eye at all of those diagnoses. But I think in a situation where somebody has especially a respiratory problem, carries a diagnosis of asthma, I may stop and pause and, as you said, ask those important questions. How, when, and by whom do you diagnose uh, with asthma? Mm -hmm. And the last thing I would say is in asthma, like many illnesses that we see, the minimum effective dose should be the one that that patient is on. And so always thinking about whether you can down titrate those medications. Absolutely. Well, let's take a deep breath, clear our lungs and move on to a study of the week that I chose. Another respiratory focused study that I found to be quite fascinating. This one looks at the use of non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, a brand name that we're all colloquially known with is uh, BiPAP, after a COPD exacerbation. And Murphy is the primary author and published this in JAMA in May of this uh, year, 2017. I await the results with bated breath, Kieran. Bated breath it is in this RCT of 116 patients with a life-threatening COPD exacerbation who were already on home oxygen. The addition of home non-invasive ventilation significantly prolonged time to readmission or death from 1.4 months to 4.3 months, so almost a fourfold prolongation in time to readmission. So just to clarify, Kieran, so we're completely clear. <laughs> this study is advocating for getting non-invasive ventilation with oxygen at home. I mean, where they live. I mean, outside of hospital. Not even on a general medicine ward where it's harder to get uh, NIV than it is to get a nice cold beer. Um, we're talking about outside the hospital, as you said, in somebody's home. Quite ambitious. Mm -hmm. And not, not everybody uh, has a, a home ICU like yours, Kieran. Uh, how did they do it? But you know, Ariel, sometimes the most important questions may not be feasible at the time. But who knows, in 20 years, we're going to be laughing at the fact that we weren't able to do non-invasive ventilation at home. So you never know. Maybe they're visionaries. Murphy's a visionary. Let's move on to why I chose this article. Well, we've covered a lot of heart failure stuff so far on the rounds table this year, but COPD is also one of the leading reasons for admission to hospital. So it's a common, important, expensive, associated with poor quality of life and symptoms. Um, and the clinical course, just like heart failure, is marked by frequent exacerbations that often lead to the need for ventilatory support. 
Readmission is extremely common. It's about 20% at 30 days for people who are admitted with COPD. So a huge problem that we're still focusing on. Now, if you look at early studies on the efficacy of home NIV, so this is not the first study to ever look at it, those have all been limited by the study design or the population of the patients that have been included in it. So really we're left with clinical equipoise in the, in the literature, and the best way to answer that is a randomized control trial. Well, we certainly see a lot of COPD, so anything that we can do to reduce exacerbations is welcome. Uh, so you said they, they used a randomized control trial approach. Uh, where did this trial take place, and what was the setting? It was quite ambitious, 13 centers in the United Kingdom between uh, 2010 and 2016. Now, obviously, you're not going to really be able to blind somebody, patient or physician, to non-invasive ventilation. It would be pretty hard to do a sham control on that. So it's an open-label randomized trial. But, of course, the outcome assessors are blinded. And uh, what was the patient population that we were uh, examining here? Yeah, so it's a fairly sick population. We've covered a fairly sick cohort of individuals this, this season already. These are individuals who present with a COPD exacerbation that required non-invasive ventilation during admission, uh, and they're recruited within four weeks of their hospitalization. Um, so they can go home after their exacerbation clears up, but they need to be entered into the study within four weeks. And they wanted to have their acidemia normalized for two weeks after they were decompensated. So sort of as they enter the hospital, they get the, talk, the clock starts ticking, and they get about two weeks to normalize after that. And then they need to have persistent hypercapnia. So that was a PCO2 of greater than 53. Persistent hypoxia, and therefore they need home oxygen, as the, as the inclusion criteria indicated initially. And then they, by sort of gold standards, they have to have severe COPD with an FEV1 of less than 50. And on top of that, they need to have a 20-pack year history of smoking to sort of nail all the, the reasons why they have the COPD. So would these patients qualify for home oxygen even without the non-invasive ventilation part? Correct. Not only would they qualify, it was actually an inclusion criteria. They needed to be on home oxygen. Mm -hmm. Now, most of the patients that we see in hospital with a COPD exacerbation are only going to be on non-invasive ventilation very briefly. Are these patients uh, kept on non-invasive ventilation in hospital, and do they go home continuously on it? Um, so that's the intervention for the trial. I'll explain that to you. Um, but right before I do, I just want to tell you a couple of key exclusion criteria. So if you required invasive ventilation, i.e. intubation, you were excluded. They did not want to include those individuals in this study. And also, if you were severely obese, had obstructive sleep apnea or neuromuscular disease on top of your COPD, that you were excluded. And those are all situations where non-invasive ventilation is of benefit as well. Um, and so it would be hard to tease out where you're getting your, your benefit from the intervention itself. So I'll tell you about the intervention. Patients were randomized in a one-to-one -one fashion to receive home oxygen or home oxygen and non-invasive ventilation, along with your typical guideline-directed chronic COPD therapy, including smoking cessation and exercise, so non-pharmacologic strategies. So tell me a bit more about the non-invasive ventilation. Is it 24 hours a day? Yeah, so first of all, the, the mechanism of it is you, can, we, you could use nasal, oronasal, or full face mask uh, devices, uh, and those were just guided by the patient preference. 
and the patients were encouraged to use it for at least six hours per night. Um, and the goal really was to achieve the minimization of nocturnal hypoventilation. So patients were allowed to use the device in the daytime to acclimatize to it and titrate their levels of the bilevel pressures. And then they had nocturnal titration of oxygen levels to get their PaO2 over 60 millimeters of mercury without lowering their pH less than 7.3. So sort of this titration of the, of the intervention for at least six hours a night. So that suggests that they're getting arterial blood gases drawn in their houses? Well, as part of their follow-up in clinic, they would have gases drawn. But yes, some part of the protocol in, during that titration to set up their, uh, their dose, so to speak, of the non-invasive ventilation was to have an arterial blood glass drawn by a respiratory therapist at home. Wow, that's quite a trial, and I'm trying my best not to be incredulous, so let's just plunge onwards. Uh, (laughs) Tell me what the primary outcome was for this trial. The primary outcome was time to readmission or death within 12 months after uh, randomization. And then the important secondary uh, outcomes they looked at were all-cause mortality, the frequency of exacerbations they had, the Medical Research Council dyspnea scale where... One is, you know, your average normal patient, and five is your breathless at rest. Um, and then they measured some quality of life, self-reported scales. The St. George Respiratory Questionnaire was sort of the main one they used, which get at, you know, uh, quality of life uh, in the setting of uh, COPD. And uh, just remind me, uh, for how long after their admission were they on the BiPAP six hours a day? So they're, they're followed up. For, uh, they, they use it until they are readmitted to hospital or die. Wow. Wow. So long term. Could be a year, yeah. Wow. Tell me the main findings of this study. I know you mentioned it briefly, but uh, I'm still dying to know the details. So just a little numbers first. 2,000 patients were screened, just over 2,000. But in the end, only 116 were actually randomized. So that's only 6% of the initially screened recruited patients were actually included. And most of those exclusions were for physiologic measures, like they didn't meet their inclusion criteria, or an inability to wean from the ventilator, and and so they could never get off of the non-invasive ventilation. And so that was sort of a, this is not safe for you to be in this trial. Of the 59 who were in the oxygen alone group, 18 of those individuals received non-invasive ventilation anyways, sort of contamination in your trial. And that was due to ethical considerations and safety considerations by the treating physicians. They thought it just was not safe for these people to continue on without non-invasive ventilation, so they put them on it. Both groups received about the same oxygen flow rates, is about a liter a minute, and the non-invasive ventilation use averaged about 7.6 hours per night. So I, one time, as an elective medical student in the ICU, tried out BiPAP, and I lasted, mm, being two, saying two minutes would be generous, uh, I couldn't tolerate it. There must have been a high rate of, uh, of intolerance among the patients in the non-invasive ventilation group. Is that true? Um, there wasn't a lot of dropout, per se, for individuals because they could not tolerate non-invasive ventilation. So I think a lot of effort and time was spent on acclimatizing these individuals to the non-invasive ventilation and finding the right setup for them. And that's slightly different setting than when you and I see them when they come in acutely dyspneic and respiratory failure and we put, you know, they're breathless and then you put this bi-level breather machine on and that can be quite subjectively uncomfortable as well. Well, kudos to them for uh, 
for toughing it out because it sounds like it it gave them benefit. Uh, absolutely. Here here are the benefits that it gave them. So time to readmission. So in the individuals who were on oxygen alone, average time to readmission was 1.4 months. So just over 30 days, right? But if you were receiving non-invasive ventilation at home, that increased to 4.3 months. So that's just about threefold increase in time, uh, which is quite impressive. Um, and that's at the one-year mark when they follow them all the way through. If you like, you know, slightly different numbers, uh, if you're a hazard ratio kind of person, um, that's a hazard ratio of 0.5 at 12 months, which is quite impressive. An absolute risk reduction of 17%, and that's the number needed to treat of six. I don't know if the numbers are going to be from this trial available, but uh, in summary, tell me, who does this study apply to? Who's the typical patient we're talking about? Yeah, I think it's a patient that you would recognize that you see in your emergency departments um, or your clinic. It's a 67-year-old individual who is on HOMO2, a 40-pack year history, smoking, FUV1 of 24% predicted, with a PACO2 of 60 on room air, and an MRC dyspnea scale of 5. So very, very breathless, chronic respiratory failure, very severe COPD. Severe COPD. And uh, what are the main learning points of this article? Well, I think, Ariel, the important things to take away are that among patients with persistent hypercapnia following an acute exacerbation of COPD, if you're able to add home non-invasive ventilation to their existing home oxygen therapy, you're going to significantly prolong the time to readmission within 12 months. And, uh, you know, as we talked about just a second ago, it really begs the question as to whether we should, we should pilot uh, this type of a, a cost-effectiveness uh, intervention to see um, could this be feasible? Right. Well, I'll definitely keep my eyes open to that. And, and I think I know the answer to this next question because you don't work in health policy, but will this change the way you, uh, you practice if you run into a patient? Well, it's an interesting question. Obviously, it can't immediately change the way I practice tomorrow. But as you know, my interest in palliative care and trying to help people stay where they want their care to be, and a lot of those people will tell me they want their care to be at home. So I think not only just from a healthcare utilization, but also from a patient preference uh, standpoint, that it will make me think and talk to those around me who are interested in this area about looking at doing a study like this. I think, I think it's a worthwhile study to do, especially given the impressive impact that this intervention seems to have. I think that'll be really worthwhile, and I, and I very much want to see what you find. Okay, Ariel, well, you know that uh, we're getting on to my favorite part of the show. It's the Good Stuff segment where we're talking about what we're reading about. And tell me, Ariel, what has caught your attention this week? So I read a fascinating article, a Vice article from October 5th. The title was, After losing her family to AIDS, this woman built an app to save lives. So this woman is named Ruth Nabembe. And uh, she's from Uganda, where she lost her entire family to HIV, to AIDS. And so what Ruth Nabembe did was she started an app. It's called Ask Without Shame. It's an app as well as a toll-free phone number and SMS line for uh, messaging. And they use collaborative education to dispense accurate information about sex. Users will send in questions on the different platforms and they have 12 doctors, nurses, clinical officers, counselors uh, looking in on the questions coming into the app and the phone lines and trying their best to answer these questions. And for many, many people, this is the only source of sex education that they have. 
you know, it's too short a segment to talk about all the misconceptions surrounding sex, especially in places with very high rates of HIV. Um, but this is a great way to use technology to try to combat the epidemic. All right. Well, I, uh, I was reading about something that deals with curiosity. And so I'm going to title my good stuff segment, Being Curious About Curiosity. So here on the rounds table and in medical research in general, and I think almost human nature at its core, is all about being curious. But I was reading about an article that questions, how does curiosity make us feel? Uh, is it a positive or is it a negative feeling? Um, and as it turns out, it can be either. The modifying factor or one of the modifying factors is time. So the question is, is the experience of curiosity more likely to be positive when we anticipate that our curiosity will be satisfied sooner rather than later. Doctors Merit Nordewire and Eric Van Dijk published their study in May in the journal Cognition and Emotion. And they did a study where half the people were told they would watch the video that piqued their curiosity about a variety of things that were the shade, different shades of the color brown. And after a short delay of only one minute, half were told that uh, there'd be a 30-minute delay, and the other half were told that there'd be an only one-minute delay. And so at the start of the delay, everyone indicated how curious they felt about the content of the video, and as well as how much they felt negative feelings, such as discomfort, versus positive feelings, such as happiness. Now, both groups reported equal levels of curiosity, but the curiosity was accompanied by more negative feelings for those participants facing a long versus a short delay. So when our curiosity will not be satisfied anytime soon, we focus on not knowing or on the information gap itself. And this is an aversive feeling, and so it's a negative connotation to your curiosity. But when our curiosity is on the verge of being satisfied, just like that brief pause before the punchline of a good joke, we focus on almost knowing or the anticipated resolution, which is a more positive experience. As Alice in Wonderland said, curiouser and curiouser. But one thing that strikes me is that as researchers, sometimes we have to wait 10 years or more to find the results of where our curiosity took us. So it speaks perhaps to the resiliency of a researcher with regards to their tolerance of, of that delay. It's almost as if you took the words straight out of the article. That's exactly what yeah. they comment on. So that's brilliant. What can I say? You are brilliant, Ariel. <laughs> Fantastic. And brilliant that you joined us on the show again. We love having you on. Please. We look back. We look forward to having you back on the show in the future. Um, and thanks again for bringing all of your insight as always. Thank you, Kieran. And uh, looking forward to next time. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable, follow us on Twitter at roundstable, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Roundstable would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes members. Thank you to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Anthony Maher, segment developer, Shaliza Halani, and faculty mentor and founder of The Rounds Table, Amol Verma. I am your weekly host, Kieran Quinn. Join us next week for an irreverent discussion of the latest medical research, because who knows what they have in store for us.